It's Wednesday, November 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The election this year will mark the end of an era for the media, and things will change no matter what. The media has revolved around the president for the last four years, and the pandemic has advanced the new landscape digitally by years. There will be a wave of retirements in places like the LA Times, Washington Post, and even the New York Times. Battles over free speech and censorship will also continue when it comes to big social media platforms. Ben Smith, media columnist at the New York Times, joins us for how the media will be changing after the election. Next, examining the mortality rate in more than 500 U.S. jails, Reuters found that in about two-thirds of cases, inmates died while in lockup before they had a chance to be convicted in court. Most of these inmates died while awaiting for quality health care. These jails are run by county sheriffs or local police and have little federal oversight, and a rising share of them have contracted out their health care to private companies. Peter Eisler, national affairs correspondent at Reuters, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. You know the interesting thing without me? You know what's going to happen to their ratings? Bomb. Bomb. Can you imagine if you had four years of covering Sleepy Joe? Joining us now is Ben Smith, media columnist at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me on. After this election, there's going to be a lot of interesting things changing for the media. And really, no matter who wins, the landscape has been changed throughout these last four years of President Trump's presidency, being attacked as fake news, a lot of distrust in certain ways. But he's also kind of made these legacy media great again, so to speak, to use his verbiage. You know, he's put so much emphasis on them and such a spotlight on them that really they were booming. Business was booming in that sense. So, Ben, you wrote an article about how it is the end of an era for the media, no matter who wins. Tell us a little bit about what you're seeing, what's going to happen after this election. Well, I think, you know, you had a situation where, as anybody knows, people are consuming media on their phones, not sitting down on the couch and watching broadcast news anymore. And I think Donald Trump's obsession with things like CNN, like the NBC Nightly News, kind of kept them more relevant than any expe- anybody expected them to be. The same is true, by the way, of the New York Times and of the Washington Post and places like that. Just that there was a, um, you know, Trump's personal obsession with these legacy media kind of kept them in the center of the conversation. That there was always a time limit on that, and. I think just, you know, you're already starting to see a recognition among the particularly the big broadcasters that the future is going to be digital and that they've really got to figure it out and take it seriously and can no longer and have to stop thinking about themselves as television channels. I mean, it's a very hard transition that they've been putting off for a long time. I think when you look at the big newspapers, one of the really interesting things, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times in particular, all of their editors in chief are on the way out the door over the next months and year. Yeah, talk a little bit about that, because that's an interesting shift right there. People that have been in these posts for so long are going to be leaving soon. Depending on who comes in, that's going to change the landscape again and how we cover presidents, how we cover just everyday occurrences in life. So all that's going to change. So tell us a little bit about what you're hearing on that front. I think there are really two different things going on. One is that you have a generation of leaders who really, you know, are newspaper men. Marty Barron at the Washington Post, Dean Bacay at the Times, and uh, Norman Perlstein at the Los Angeles Times, and who really oversaw a fairly painful transition from newsrooms that were print newspapers to digital brands. And those transitions, at least at the Post and the Times, are are getting close to being complete. And there's an opportunity for new leaders to come in and 
really fully inhabit this new world rather than having to manage transition to it. And then I think, right, there are these big questions around, does the media pull back toward a more sort of conservative, just the facts, ma'am, approach than under Donald Trump? I think it was so much of Trump's politics were directly about attacking these big media brands. There wasn't much choice around engaging him. You know, it wasn't just that he was lying, it's that he was lying about us and making us the focus and pulling us sort of into the arena. And I think there's a question, which I think is not at all a done deal about whether these institutions try to retreat back more toward traditional roles or whether they try to kind of like lean into this more engaged posture that, by the way, maybe drives digital subscriptions a little better. And I think that's a big question that I don't really know the answer to how it comes out. You mentioned a little bit about how the big media giants are going to have to really complete that transition to digital, things like that. But on the other side of those things, social media and the big social media giants like Twitter and Facebook and all that, they've been coming under a lot of scrutiny recently about censorship, things like that, especially on the conservative side. And there was a term that was coined by somebody that you mentioned in your article called the attention wars and kind of basically all these different outlets grasping for your attention and everything. So how do these social media giants fit into this? You know, I think the sort of wide open kind of Wild West era of Facebook and Twitter is, is and YouTube is really ending. And they're coming under sort of political pressure to kind of clean up the platforms, which means, by the way, marginalizing voices that had been unconventional means if you're looking for a conservative voice on YouTube, increasingly you're going to find Fox News, not some random YouTuber, for better or for worse. And if you're looking for a liberal voice, you're probably more likely to find MSNBC. And I think there's also sort of a wave of regulatory pressure coming that's going to make them more responsible for things, maybe not for everything posted on the platform, but for things that get wide distribution, for things that go viral. And it's not something Americans pay a lot of attention to, but they're under a lot of pressure in Australia and in Europe. And I think because the U.S. traditionally doesn't regulate these platforms and is very, you know, does not regulate speech, that doesn't mean they don't have to operate in other parts of the world. And I think the practices that develop there tend to kind of bleed back into the U.S. And I think, I think that is really ramping up. And there's, so there's just a whole bunch of different factors that are pushing them toward a more controlled ecosystem. It doesn't necessarily mean censorship per se, that things are going to get deleted. I think it means it's going to be harder for you or for me as an outsider to come in and try to make a message spread on these platforms. And what is going on in Australia and the European Union? Obviously, these companies operate across all these countries. So are these countries making specific laws that are regulating them that then in turn impacts the way we do it? Or, you know, what's going on there? Yeah, you know, I think we in the U.S. have had this sort of philosophy of, wow, these new technology companies are so amazing and magical that we don't want to regulate them. We want to let them flourish. We're not going to treat them like normal businesses. We're going to let them do whatever they want. And I think there's an argument that that did help them become these dominant world global forces and incredibly vibrant American businesses. But in Australia, they're saying, well, Google's a monopoly, just like a railroad or like a port. And they put a guy and they assigned a guy who's spent his career regulating railroads and ports to like figure out how much they ought to pay to use the content of news publishers and things like that. And in Europe, they're, you know, they're saying, well, if like if Google News is going to take a headline from a newspaper, they should pay for that headline. And that's stuff that is sort of unthinkable here. But there, they're, they don't really see any reason to treat these tech companies any different from any other company. They're just making some laws and demanding they follow them. One last thing that I wanted to ask as well that you mentioned in your article when we're talking about all these different types of media now, even pay for media, there's a place called Substack, which you mentioned is kind of like a Twitter premium where people can kind of subscribe to journalists, their favorite journalists or whatnot, and continue to get their newsletters and their content. How does this figure into the future of media and how it'll be changing? 
as these big social media giants sort of consolidate and make it harder for independent voices and outsiders to cut through, you know, whether those are really creative, interesting, constructive voices or people spreading hate. Meanwhile, there are these tools that allow individuals to go direct to their consumers in a, in a way that isn't controllable, I think, by the big central platforms. And I think you, in Substack, an email newsletter platform is one of those. But they're just technical tools now that allow you or me to start a newsletter, start a video channel. And if we have a lot of people who like our content to get paid doing it, and, and it's sort of easy now in a way that it used to be hard. I think you'll see, you know, both big stars and kind of knit people who have small but passionate followings start to go that way. Ben Smith, media columnist at the New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. The federal government has been collecting data on jail deaths from every jail in the country for 20 years, but it does not release that data to the public. It does not release that data to anyone, not even to government officials. So we decided that we wanted to fill in the gaps and for the first time, be able to identify jails that had extraordinarily high death rates, jails that were among the deadliest in the country. Joining us now is Peter Eisler, National Affairs Correspondent at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Thanks for having me. Peter, you and some other colleagues there at Reuters have released a couple parts now from your two-year investigation into the death rate in more than 500 top U.S. jails. There's a lot that goes into this. You guys compiled your own jail death rates, looked into a lot of different numbers. Part one was about how almost 5,000 inmates died in U.S. jails without getting their day in court. Part two was about how some of these U.S. jails are outsourcing their medical care. So, Peter, give us an overview. What prompted this look into these death rates? And then tell us how you kind of compile the information. Jails are locally run. They're typically run by sheriffs or police departments. They're designed to hold people for short periods of time while they're awaiting trial or maybe on a short sentence for a low-level crime. They are probably the least transparent component of the criminal justice system. Because they're so local, they get very little oversight, and there's very little data out there about what goes on. The federal government has been collecting data on jail deaths from every jail in the country for 20 years, but it does not release that data to the public. It does not release that data to anyone, not even to government officials. So we decided that we wanted to fill in the gaps and for the first time be able to identify jails that had extraordinarily high death rates, jails that were among the deadliest in the country. And the only way to do that was to go to these jails. And we selected about 500 jails, the biggest of any jail in the country with 750 or more inmates on average, and the 10 largest jails in each state. And we sent out more than 1,500 open records requests, public records requests, and gathered the data ourselves from these jails and then built a database that allowed us to calculate mortality rates for each jail. Tell us about a little bit more about how there really isn't much of this federal oversight. How are these jails set to report on this stuff? So there's very little oversight of jails. There are about half the states have some sort of standards for local jails. And nearly half the states have no standards whatsoever. And the states that do have standards, often the agencies that write those standards don't have any enforcement power. And there's virtually no federal oversight to sort of backstop the state. So if a state doesn't have an oversight system, it's not like the feds are going to come in and, and back them up. It means that the jail essentially operates as its own independent entity to the extent that it answers to that these sheriffs and police departments answer to anyone, it's usually to local boards and commissions like the county commission or the city council or something like that. 
with this lack of oversight, it creates a vacuum. So jails are required to report their mortality data every year to the U.S. Department of Justice, but that reporting is voluntary and the data is not released publicly. So there really is no way to get a view into what is happening into most of these facilities. And so tell us now a few examples of what you guys were finding. I know one example that you used is a place called The Fossil, which is a 65-year-old facility in Indiana. And some of the deaths that went on there, through looking through all this data, what were you finding out that was going on? We were finding that the jails are chronically underfunded. Communities and local officials are not particularly interested in sinking a lot of money into updating their jails. And at the same time, the inmate populations that these jails are having to manage have become incredibly complex. More and more of the inmates who are coming into these places are suffering from mental illness, in part because a lot of these public mental health treatment facilities have been closed down. So those people have been pushed out into the streets and they often end up in the local jails, which are not equipped to handle people who are in mental crises. Acute problems from drug and alcohol overdoses are way up, and that's in part as a result of the opioid epidemic. So you have this sort of trifecta of problems where you have a much more difficult jail population to manage, you have very little oversight, and you have a lot of these facilities that are just underfunded. The jail that you mentioned in Marion County, Indiana, which is in Indianapolis, is among about two dozen jails that we identified where the death rate over the past decade has been more than double the national average. And these jails that have these problems, the problems just continue to fester from year to year to year in large part because there is no oversight and because there is not very much transparency. So a lot of people, including local officials, don't even know that those jails have an extraordinarily high death rate. So the other part of this now is that you know these death rates are going up But a lot of these jails, as you mentioned, don't really have the resources to run their own medical units. So what they do is they outsource that to these private healthcare providers, these companies that come in and and manage all that stuff for them. So tell us about that. Tell us about how that part of the industry really started taking rise. The Supreme Court ruled in the the 1970s that jail inmates are entitled to adequate health care as a constitutional right. As you mentioned, a lot of these jails don't have the capacity to provide health care on their own. So they began turning to these other companies, these private companies that began to emerge in the 80s, and particularly in the 90s and the 2000s. They came up and offered to come in and to run a health care program in the jail and to control the costs associated with those health care programs. And what we wanted to do was to assess what has happened with that. And what we found was in the past, the most recent three years, from 2016 to 2019, the death rates in jails that were using the leading correctional health care contractors that had privatized their care had higher death rates than jails where the health care was managed publicly, either by, say, the sheriff's office or a local health department or something like that. So there has been a cost associated with this privatization of health care in jails, and the cost has been more deaths. Yeah, and by 2018, 62% of these jails were using these privatized services. So, you know, more than half of them now. One of the companies that you profiled a lot in your reporting was called Corizon. And uh, they had a lot of different problems. I mean, there was issues with, uh, you know, a lot of turnover. They lost a lot of contracts. There was a lot of deaths obviously happening under their watch. Cases of inmates needing hospitalization and nurses saying, let's hospitalize them and then getting overruled by other people uh, above them. 
Tell us a little bit about some of the troubles that they had. Horizon is one of these major correctional health care companies. It's one of the biggest companies in the United States, and they have many, many jails around the country where they provide the health care. And like most of these companies, Horizon is a for-profit company, so there is an inherent tension there where they get a contract to manage health care in a jail, and it pays them a certain amount. Anything that they spend above and beyond that amount is a loss for them. And any way that they can cut their spending below that amount is where they get their profit. So there is, in a sense, a profit motive to cut back on the costs of care. And there are a lot of ways that these companies find efficiencies. But one of the things that critics of this industry say is that one of the ways that they do it is by skimping on care, by cutting back. When an inmate needs to go to the hospital, it's very expensive if you try to minimize hospitalizations. You try to reduce the amount of specialty care that's being provided, then those are ways that you can cut your costs as a company. Now, the jail that we looked at quite closely is the Chatham County Jail in um, Savannah, Georgia. And that was a jail where Corizon had the contract and they had a lot of problems. And one of the things that we documented through court records and through the interviews with people who were working there at the time and that sort of thing was that they had problems where the medical staff in the jail would recommend that somebody, say, needed a particular kind of care or needed to go to the hospital, and they would sometimes run into pushback from higher up, from sort of people in the corporate ranks. And Corizon has been sued a couple of times that have resulted in some very large settlements for not providing adequate care, and they have changed management and you know, they say that they are improving all of these things, but that was what we found in that case. And these problems are not exclusive to Corizon. We found many examples of these companies where we found similar sorts of issues. Through your reporting, you did speak to a number of heads of these companies. What was their reaction when confronted with some of this data? You know, the companies have a number of responses to this, but one of the things that these companies will tell you is that often by the time a jail comes to them and asks them to privatize the jail's health care, it is because that jail is in crisis. One of the company execs said to us, you know, we are like firemen. By the time they call us to come in, it's already an emergency. So it's unfair to use mortality rates in the jails that we have and to compare them to mortality rates in jails where healthcare is publicly managed because we are dealing with an inherently sicker or more damaged population, people with you know, bigger problems with mental illness, bigger problems with addiction and that sort of thing. So they talk a lot about that. They say that the cost is certainly not their number one priority to every single one of the companies said, no, we do not put profits ahead of quality of care. We put care first in every single instance. In some cases, they disputed the methodology that we used to come to compare these death rates. But we did come up with a statistical model that both our people with statistical backgrounds in-house and also we had two independent statisticians, very well qualified independent statisticians review our model. And they felt that the differences in death rates between those jails that were using these top contractors and the jails that had publicly managed care were statistically significant. Peter Eisler, National Affairs Correspondent at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.